Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. This week, Michelle S. Johnson returns to the program to talk about her latest endeavor, Playgrown. Dr. Johnson calls both Saginaw and Kalamazoo, Michigan home, She's been a public scholar teaching at Grand Valley State University, Michigan State University, Saginaw Valley State University, and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She was one of the co-founders and executive directors of FIRE, Historical and Cultural Arts Collaborative in Kalamazoo. And every Saturday morning, as DJ Disobedience, she hosts the radio show, Slip Back Soul, on Kalamazoo's WIDR 89.1 FM. Johnson formed Playgrown in 2003 with an eye on creating play spaces and experiences for teens and adults. Playgrown creates accessible intergenerational play spaces and exercise opportunities that provide transformative principles of play for populations of play-deprived teens and adults. The project partnered with play organizers like Interplay to create spaces and generate experiences in existing places to bring people together to play across age, gender, sexuality, race, ethnicities, and physical abilities. Dr. Johnson applied for and received an Arcus Center for Social Justice and Leadership Fellowship. During this fellowship, she researched multi- and intergenerational play and focused on how play functions as a basic need. She collected local, national, and international data and visited playground organizers and manufacturers in parts of Europe. Beginning in Kalamazoo, Playgrown will grow to collaborate with stakeholders such as employable neighbors, urban farmers, and other cultural producers to provide a cafe and studio lodging. Michelle, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great. I'm a little, little gravelly. I have some allergies, but I'm okay. Just running around with such really great, fabulous projects going on right now. You know, I think it's the, the weather. I know I feel that too. You know, it's just sort of like this up, down, up, down. A lot of, lot of stuff going on, and it's sort of left, left, leaves you feeling funny. Yes, it does. And one day it's really cold, and then another day it's warm. And um, but um, yep, I'm fine. I'm, again, just so many great things happening right now. Just trying to keep up, man. Keep up. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, well, Kizzy, I mean, let me let me let you know. Michelle and I, I mean, which is also interesting, um, we go back. Um, we sort of mm-hmm. met over a political thing, and um, but then I went to Kalamazoo, which I hadn't been to since I was a kid, and. Um, she and Denise Miller had started this organization, Fire, and I went up there and I did poetry. And, you know, we just sort of hung out and, and bonded. We're both Libras. We're both <laughs> We're both wow. importantly. <laughs> we're, we're both Michelle, you know. It doesn't, it doesn't get, it doesn't get much, much better than that. You know, and, and so, you know, one of the things, Michelle, that I found interesting is, like, you know, I'm looking at Playground, and it, you said that you were thinking about it in 2003, and I said, I knew her at 2000 and 2003, and she didn't tell me anything <laughs> about this. <laughs> I mean, well, we were talking well, I've been interested in this for really it's it's tw- for 20 years now. Um, it, you know, way back when I was at a, a playground in Saginaw, which is one of my homes, probably the place that I grew up, a real a substantial home for me. Um, and was on a playground with my goddaughter, and it, I saw me and other adults wanting to go down slides and swing on the swings. But you know, I'm a I'm a tall woman. I'm almost six feet tall. So those slides were not built for me and hadn't been built for me since probably I was, shoot, at that elementary school in, you know, fourth grade or so because I've always been tall. But it made me really realize how inaccessible play was, or that type of play anyway, was for um, folks after they hit, you know, about 12 years old. And um, and I realized I wanted to do that. And those McDonald's play spaces looked fun to me, but there was no way I was going to be able to get my big butt up in there. And so <laughs> I thought, you know, this would be great. And so, you know, I pitched it to lots of people. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people would say, oh, that's a great idea. Um, but that would be kind of as far as it would go, or I would contact designers and They'd be like, that's a great idea, but, uh, you know, and it just kind of would kind of fade out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so you might have caught me when um, uh, uh, people had faded out enough that I was just kind of had that on a back burner um, for, for quite a while. And when we met, I was doing fire, and I kind of pitched it at the beginning. And, again, people were like, yeah, it's great, that's wonderful, but, yeah, you know, just just couldn't get any real traction behind it um, past people thinking that was a great idea. And um, so toward the end of my time at FIRE, um, I, I got a grant, a uh, fellowship from the Arca Center for Social Justice and Leadership, and I had six months to really think about play and play for adults and for teenagers and I uh, really see it and was able to articulate it to folks to give me enough space to think about it more deeply how connected play was to questions of social justice and how basic that is of a need for all beings, not just humans, but for, 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 but for humans in this case, and how inaccessible um, just play is for 
um, for people of color, for people that um, live in sometimes marginalized experiences, and people who are poor, people who are of color, um, girls, um, you know, there are all kinds of intersections of our communities that um, <clears throat> lose access, not just because they've outgrown it, but because they don't have access, um, because the space is no longer there, um, play is relegated to um, competitive sports, which I always say there's absolutely nothing wrong with competitive sports. It's great. It builds teamwork and leadership and accountability and all kinds of fabulous things for um, young people and adults. It is, however, a or it, additionally, it's a particular kind of play um, that in addition to competitiveness and various levels, competitiveness, there's also various levels of accessibility for folks. It's hard to, if you don't have a whole lot of money um, and your kid wants to play basketball and football and run track, um, to be able to afford those those sports, um, to be able to do cheerleading and volleyball and whatever other sports. And, and those are just because you've got to be able to get a physical and then you've got to be able to provide, have the uniform. You've got to be able to have people who are going to be able to tote you back and forth. Well, there, there, you know, there are all kinds of expenses, and that's just for uh, uh, school sports. There's all kinds of external sports that people do now, young, young people from sometimes the ages of five and six years old, that cost money. And so, mm-hmm. that, that's, that, so we get so – and that's where our play gets channeled you know, is mm-hmm. largely into those arenas. Now, now it's a little bit different. We have trampoline parks and zip line places. You know, it's, 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 it's catching up. You know, this idea, thank goodness, is, uh-huh. is catching up. And um, so that's a very long answer to say <laughs> where I probably was in 2003 um, when you didn't hear about it. Um, but I was also so very busy, um, you know, tending to artists of every ilk at that in 2003 as well. Well, 2005, because fire started in 2005. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's interesting, though, is like part of our where we intersect is about social justice. And, you know, I did Detroit Summer. And one of the early years of Detroit Summer, we had a really diverse group. And they weren't clicking. You know, we were having these wonderful intergenerational dialogues. And we were coming up with programs and projects. But they weren't clicking. And Mm -hmm. one Saturday, we decided to just play. Mm-hmm. You know, we decided to just play where nobody, you know, like this, you couldn't pick your regular teams or whatever. We played everything from water balloons to, you know, mm-hmm. hopscotch. We played all day. And by the end of the evening, when we decided to have that intergenerational dialogue, because believe it or not, Grace was sitting there and she was like, she played a little bit, but she said, if somebody hits me with a water bell, But by the end of the day, you know, there's been a shift. 
And when mm-hmm. we went back Absolutely. that night, and I think it was the year that um, that Jimmy was still here. I think it was a, the year that he he passed. But I was sitting on the porch with him, and he said, "Well, how did it go today?" And I guess he expected me to have this huge revolutionary talk. And I said, "We just played." And I told him what we had all done and how we had made new teams, but we just had fun. We ran, mm-hmm. we jumped, everybody from mm-hmm. here down, and how it had been transformational. And and he said, you know, he wouldn't have thought of doing that, but it had worked. So he said, I have to think about that. It sounds like a good thing. So play is part of social justice to me. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there's so so many elements of play that are essential to uh, not just play because, you know, people can be playing with you and hurt your feelings or hurt your body. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like we, th- this isn't to idealize what uh, happens sometimes on the playground. This is not, the <laughs> but, 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 but just play, you know, play where it's, you have to communicate and you, and in communicating, you have to listen and respond and participate. Um, play, like real play has elements of safety and risk and cooperation, mm-hmm. either cooperation with various parts of oneself and their body or cooperation with another person. Um, just to think about the inherent trust um, involved in swinging, having pushing somebody on a swing. You know, you're giving yourself to that other person and utilizing your own energy to um, facilitate that relationship. Um, and so th- 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 that's just swinging. Now, you know, the tag and uh, uh, kickball and, you know, all of those kinds of um, games that we play that are about a kind of connection and also kind of um, working with the dynamics that exist in the world in a way that are low risk. Um, and so play is so essential in that way, and um, it's particularly why it brings people together. When I had students, took students down south, not this last summer, but the summer before that, for that civil rights tour, um, we tried to make as much as possible play during a really heavy experience of going to places in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Tennessee, um, to make sure that we created some levity and some healing and some laughter because, of course, laughter goes with breath. But one of the most exciting, memorable times of that whole trip was playing musical chairs. And, you know, and, but, you know, it tells you a lot about people, too. Like, you know, you know who's, who's willing to, like, kind of push somebody a little bit to get to their spot, you know. So you know who you deal with when you play, too. Um, so, I, and, and, but, again, that, like, engaged in these really basic and important elements of human and, and not just human, but I think animal experience as well, um, in these ways that have some levity and um, some movement and um, possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is so, Kizzy Michelle. Hey, uh-huh. Kizzy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm just wondering, you know, what have adults, you know, told you about their experience with play? Mm-hmm. Because you know, not only do I see play as a form of social justice, but also bringing out that inner child. So I'm just wondering, you know, what are the adults 
experiences and what they've told you in engaging in that play? Well, the, one of the first things that comes to that, there's a lot of different things that I want to say about that, and you can tell I like I can talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> but um, I'm not the I'm not the interviewer e that you have to try to pull it out of me. Um, but I, you know, like one of the pieces that I'm really excited about is um, Playground is partnering with Ewe Fresh. Um, in Atlanta, and e-refresh, e-we meaning what it is, um, e-refresh in Atlanta has this, uh, it's like a, how, how do I explain it, um, health care, body health care um, in natural fragrances and um, elements, lotions, oils, um, and it's Afrocentric largely, organization and they are building now a wellness center and we are partnering playground is partnering with them you know as they advance and being able to um, fulfill their initial mission of inside um, but to be able to have play and they have participated in um, adult recesses in Atlanta and they're really they were sharing with me um, all the really fabulous uh, games that people like to play, and they were fabulous because they were old school. We're talking about hopscotch and tag and Red Rover and dodgeball and these games that are uh, that we played when we were young people. And I put on something called Park Hop in Kalamazoo. Uh, we have something in Kalamazoo called Art Hop that once a month they have um, various spots and venues across the city that feature artists, local and sometimes national or international artists. But uh, we're picking up on that day of Park Hop, where once a week we would visit a different park in Kalamazoo as adults and as teenagers. And the reports from those experiences, again, were that kind of, Michelle, what you talked about, the, the kind of the joy of intergenerational communing and uh-huh. you know, people feeling excited about exercising and getting their blood mm-hmm. pumping in ways that you know wasn't going to the gym, um, you know, laughing, um, making mm-hmm. new friends, or making different friends with people they already knew, um, and you know, deepening their relationship of trust. Um, but people still really started looking forward to it. And it was a very interesting combination of being open to, like, new kinds of tag, you know, because there's all kinds mm-hmm. of new kinds of tag. Um, but, you know, also really wanting to engage in those, um, those, those games and those experiences that we had when we were children, and I speak for myself as well, and to bring another level of consciousness to it too, you know, or maybe even, you know, sometimes maybe more self-consciousness, but hopefully maybe even less in some cases. Um, And so adults are just reporting over and over again once they do it, and teens as well, and it's great to play intergenerationally, Um, but consistently folks are saying how good it feels. Now, you know, certainly there are folks that it's not easy, right? Because we've gotten real mm-hmm. uptight. And, you know, by the time you get into your 30s, um, if you haven't found ways to play, um, it, it starts looking really difficult to kind of branch out and reach out. And then 
particularly as people get older and have some physical challenges, the notions of play associated with the things that they did when they were kids don't seem quite as accessible. And, you know, people are, you know, we, we, we get uptight for all kinds of legitimate and sometimes um, I guess uh, uh, uptightness is us always say that it's legitimate, but, you know, some, some things that maybe aren't as rooted in, our real safety as or our real danger as we think they are. Um, so there are there are blocks, you know. But, um, mm-hmm. but what uh, they reported and what we experienced, what they reported in Atlanta and uh, what we experienced in, in Kalamazoo, is if you start playing, you see people coming by and then start wanting to participate, you know. Um, and you provide enough different experiences so people have points of entry that speak to them as well because you know like I like tag now somebody may not want to be running around catching each other <laughs> and you know freezing when they get caught you know I, I you know those are the kinds of things I like to do but there are other kinds of play like lawn darts and you know other, other pieces that um, are other ways to interact with one another that um, don't have to be quite so intense and then mm-hmm. people see those things happening and they're like, ooh, I want to play that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, was it difficult to get, like, you know, because like I said, there was that intergenerational part because there was one part to where, you know, I remember seeing, like, the, the older members of the community who were sitting there who were happy to talk, but then after a while they were sort of looking and then there would be that one person who would say, who were like, you know, I remember um, she kicked off her shoes, and she was ready to. I mean, she was in there, and it was like. And, there, and but there was a moment when, like, the kids, because you know our kids were teens and into their early twenties, who would stop and, and stop and sort of look like, you know, is she really gonna do this? Mm-hmm. And she did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that's so essential, Michelle, because. In part, like, you know, we model all kinds of behaviors for the people who come after us. And um, play is, of course, one of those places that we model. As, you know, as black folks, a lot of our play takes, you know, you know wait, let me, let me just say, I don't want to speak about black folks, but I'm going to speak from my family. A lot of our play <laughs> takes place on, like, the baseball field, you know, um, but also, like, at the Pocino, you know, at the table playing Pocino or playing cards, you know, um, like, mm-hmm. we, we play with each other, you know, we play with each other, you know, um, but we have all these other ways that we play, and that we model those as adults for our children. And so if we get out there, you know, I got to see my aunties and uncles and my dad out there on the baseball field. So then I, and they were doing that, you know, into their, you know, 40s and 50s. And so for me, grown people play, you know, mm. um, and, but we've, we've shut ourselves down in so many ways, and it's particularly as people of color, particularly as women, um, we don't get to play as much. So then what we do is we model to our young people is, you know, that there are only these specific ways you kind of do it, if you do it at all. And if you do it, maybe you've got to be a professional playing basketball or football or something. You know, that's how you play after you get to a certain Mm -hmm. age. Or you bungee jump and do a whole bunch of extreme stuff, which sounds really fun. I want to jump out of a plane sometime still. 
But that's an extreme kind of play that you got to have some money and some, you know, some a lot of leisure time to be able to engage in. So again, I think the intergenerational or the multi-generational play is so important because it's important for us to model that grown people play to young people um, so that they have these very high expectations for their life in the future and that it disrupts their notion of what aging is and um, you know mm-hmm. what it is to be a grown person. Because a grown person without play, that is a very bleak future to me. And I would like to show our young people that there's something much better than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what? You're also a historian, and do you do you see a period of time when we, as African American, as communities of color, that we sort of stopped playing? Because I mean, I can recall seeing people play cards. I, well, I remember we had a, a great uncle who played checkers, and we would play checkers with him and doing all that. But then there was, at, at a certain point in time, suddenly there was this thing like, you know, stop playing. You know, you've got to be mm-hmm, a grown-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what what shifted that? And is there a, a greater onus on us as people of color that we have to show that, you know, yes, we're mature and we're responsible mm-hmm. and we're doing all of this? You know, I think that's real interesting because I think, you know, again, as a historian, and that's so interesting that that you ask that, um, I'm really interested in these um, jubilees, these celebrations of emancipation, either the emancipation in the British Isles, because we started in Michigan and Detroit, um, you know, celebrating the, the, the emancipation in the British West Indies um, as early as, I think, 1839, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And so, and it would shift. Sometimes it'd be, like, connected to the British Isles. Sometimes it'd be connected to our, you know, alleged uh, uh, freedom in the United States, either the Emancipation Proclamation or the 13th Amendment. Um, But we all, we, we celebrated it. We celebrated it regularly and for and people are still celebrating, and I won't go on why that's so important, how we got our own traditions that are, are different than Juneteenth, and I won't go on to that. But all of these events, they're having all they're playing all kinds of games. You know, they're they're again they're playing baseball, um, they're they're playing um, tag, they're playing these other games that we some of them we don't even know about but this is a fascinating subject matter um but they say that they're having these these activities and games and festivities that are going on at these at these jubilee picnics oftentimes that are happening on the 1st of August you know if i had a big old research budget that would be that'd be a great team right um and so and we i know that play and community play goes way back um, um, and so even even in Juneteenth, I've I've seen that they you know they were said that they people were having these kinds of games going on. Um, however, I think that we lose I, I think that we lose some of that play simultaneously with the general American culture moving away from the kind of outdoor. Um, play where you send your kids out and they better keep themselves occupied and get creative and with kick mm. the can and, you know, Red Rover um, to a lot more internal play, a lot more video games, 
you know, yeah. like, uh, you know, that play, that kids stop having to figure out what to do with a stick, you know, uh-huh. and, you know, and, you know, now they've got, you know, they go from the joystick to the, the hand, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm going to, I'm probably disrespecting a whole world right now, but because I don't know what those little handheld things are that they use when they're playing video games. Um, and so, you know, we, we move inside, we bring our kids inside, and we allow them to sit in front of these screens and call that play, you know. Um, and so, I, you know, I really think like the 80s and 90s, we started moving away from, you know, kind of passing on those traditions. Um, but I think that that's a really interesting thing to think about. You know, when did when did we stop doing hopscotch? You know, when did you stop seeing kids on the you know the sidewalk doing hopscotch? And they don't have to be doing only old traditional games. But you know, it's still weird now to see kids sometimes out you know playing and using their imagination. You know, I've listened in on some of the kids um, that used to play in our yard here in Grand Rapids and. Um, to hear them, like, you know, making up these really fanciful stories um, was really refreshing because, you know, I don't know that that happens in those same kinds of ways where um, young people have to come up with, or even us as adults have to come up with um, scenarios and ways to interact with each other that are based on our imagination, which is such a powerful tool, our imagination. Mm-hmm. So, were you surprised, you know, when when you went back to that, I mean, Arcus Foundation, you know, came through, um, you've traveled with us, and that you found it Mm -hmm. in other places, were you surprised pleasantly? Yes, you know, I, w- I was I was surprised, and then I still felt like, oh, there's still something missing, um, because I did during that when I had that fellowship with the Arcus Center, I was so lucky to be able to travel to Amsterdam and Rotterdam and London to study what they were doing in terms of adult play in those parts of Europe, and there and you know, and also I didn't get to go to China, but I also know that there's some uh, some significant um, adult play experiences for folks there. Um, But even before, let me back up, even before I went to Europe to look at these these kinds of experiences, I went to City Museum in St. Louis, which is an amazing experience. If you haven't been, um, they've uh, modified an old, I think it's an old shoe factory, if I recall correctly, and put in all kinds of interactive installations, multiple types of slides, metal slides, um, cement slides, um, really tall slides with the, the shoots that they used to send the shoes down, you slide down, like maybe I want to say perhaps three stories. You might get the idea, I love slides, but they also had a number of climbing structures, um, uh, planes, old planes that you could climb up in and um, through these metal uh, metal mesh type tubes so that you're perfectly suspended in space but yet you still have this sense of um, kind of risk because you can see through. Um, really an incredible space. Um, 
And I was completely fascinated, not just by the experience of climbing and sliding, which, again, both of those I really enjoy, but watching grown people and teenagers and kids engage in this place in the, one of these, these really incredibly joyful ways. And then going by there on a Friday or a Saturday night, and seeing that this was a this was a destination, this was a group destination, a place where couples were going together, where families were coming, and to see how people were so excited there, just maybe wanted to know, what really want to know more about what was happening in other places in the country and the world, and so then that's where the European um, trip came into place. And those, a lot of those were not quite as fantastic. The Karsten Holler slide um, had been there and gone um, when I got there. Um, but a lot of it was um, kind of you know, more small parks or installations in parks. Um, and many of them um, were very much like, and, and I think it's great, but it was very much like um, gym equipment built for the outside. You know, so you mm-hmm. like to do the the that thing where your like your feet go back and forth, uh, like a. You can tell I don't like to go to the gym much either. That's part of where playground came from. It's like I like my workout to be fun. In fact, let's take the work out of it completely. Let's put the play mm-hmm. in it. But um, you know, when those like ski things, you know, um, and so they would take, you know, they take some of that equipment and that, the concepts and take it outside. So you're kind of at a outside gym, which I think is really nice for a lot of folks. I, I like the old school. I like swings and slides and climbing structures and things I can bounce on, um, you know, some low impact some kind of low impact. I don't necessarily want to feel like I'm in the gym because I don't like going to the gym in the first place. Um, But that's a lot of what was going on. But at the same time, it was so fascinating to see them, like, for instance, in Rotterdam, these senior classes of folks that were coming on a weekly or a a a twice-a-week basis for these classes Um, And they were, you know, going out and they were balancing on the balance beam and they were, you know, pulling themselves up in some of these bars and um, they were really excited about being able, these uh, experiences being multi-generational. And so it was really great to think about, um, you know, these, these opportunities for seniors and very young people, you know, toddlers or, or, uh, you know, four or five year olds to be able to have this kind of really special interaction, not just a a general multi-generational, but a a familial um, relationship with play in those kinds of ways. And so that was really exciting to see what was happening there at that time. And, you know, of course, that was, uh, that was some years ago now, that was almost, that was eight years ago that that, of that European trip. Um, And so there's, there's a lot more going on now and a lot more going on across the country, but still, you know, a big, a big uh, gap, a, a big need for it um, in, in the U.S. and, you know, in our community, in Mich- our communities in Michigan. Well, Sean and Kizzy, we're going to take our first break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about 
the adapting green spaces to mm, make a play. Yay. Girl, so mm-hmm. we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And Kizzy and I are talking with Michelle Johnson about Playground. I mean, you know, I'm loving it. I, I can recall one of my, my best times in Chicago. My son went to the University of Chicago, and at one point in time, he lived right by the Museum of Science and Industry. And I can remember us going there one morning and just, like, playing with everything. We were just, like, you know, and I had as, as, as good a time as, as he did, you know, because we were playing with stuff. And here you've been to different places and you've seen different spaces where they are playing. When you were in Europe and traveling about and then you came back here, what was different about, I mean, you know, it seems like they were already into it. And then you come back here and you're and you're trying to, first of all, do this, talk to people and look for a space. When you went to your first space in Detroit, what did, you know, well, actually, is that where your first space was? Oh, you tell me. <laughs> when you got ready to do your first playground, what did you have to do with the community around it? Well, we are, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you asked that. So I went to Europe. I was pumped up. I was ready. I was writing grants like crazy and I wasn't getting any nibbles you know again I was like oh hearing that's a great idea but I wasn't getting any funding and at this point you know I had tried and not gotten any support and tried and not getting any support and this time I had given it my all and I was heartbroken that I wasn't getting any kind of support or any kind of funding and I put it on the back shelf. In fact, I put it, it wasn't even, it was like, it really was. It was on the back shelf, on the back porch. Um, And and, uh, because I just couldn't take, I could not take any more um, pitching it and it not happening because I'm, I'm a person and I believe most of us function. Well, uh, some people will say they do well when people tell them, no, that's not me. I thrive with yes. And I believe in yes. And you tell me no too many times and it's, you know, you, you might as well just crush, you know, some part of my spirit. And so I set it down for a very, very long time and um, through a conversation, and so you know, pitched it in Detroit, pitched it in Kalamazoo, you know, had been pitching it, and then I, I just stopped. And um, through a series of, uh, of events, um, I ended up at a table 
um, with three other former trustees of the Kalamazoo Nature Center. As we were leaving the nature centers, we were all resigning and thinking about, you know, what, you know, what, what, what was the third option? If we couldn't fix this institution and if we couldn't um, ride out, you know, the changes that were happening, um, how were we as these four women, what was our third option? And um, we kind of each shared what our our dreams were and what, you know, what we were, you know, you know, if we could do anything, what would we be doing? And um, I, one of the people was Rebecca Kick, who is the Director of Community and Economic Development, I think is the name of it, for the city of Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. Um, Benny Gardner, who is a professor of science, uh, I think, Oh God, I'm so feel so bad that I don't know her exact field at Kalamazoo College, and uh, Jennifer, who is also at Kalamazoo in, in Kalamazoo College in psychology, and um, we just started talking about the you know the importance of play, and um, Rebecca Kick um, mentioned that the city has a, a plot of land. Um, that is a brownfield land and the floodplain along the Kalamazoo River on the historic east side of Kalamazoo. Um, and this might well be a place where we could um, enact some really important things for the community and um, that these visions that we all had, um, Benny for land and water remediation, um, Jennifer with her emphasis on psychological health, um, and Rebecca with a very strong commitment to um, equitable and just uses of uh, land and economic development in Kalamazoo at a really important time, and me with this vision of, um, of wellness um, and wellness in space. And so the the universe has aligned, and we are now in the process. I'm in the, I think the third month now of um, being the lead uh, on designing and deciding some community design for a 7.26 acre wellness park in this space. Wow. Um, to bring these three elements of wellness, wellness of the land, because this does the land does have um, arsenic and lead in it um, from its former um, it, it being a former depository for coal ash for an electric company. Um, you know, like it made good sense to dump something like that along the Kalamazoo River, uh, <laughs> any river for that matter. Um, uh-huh. But you know, we're talking about you know some you know, correcting seven generations of of mistakes and picking up seven generations perhaps of of good sense and wherever that was. Um, but the land is you know is toxified as well as the the water. It's again, it's also on a floodplain. So you know, how do we um, utilize that space and ha- and have it become accessible to the people who are in the community um, in sustainable um, and creative ways. Um, wellness of the body 
through what play, through teenage for teenagers and adults. And then really importantly, they're all important, but also the wellness of the culture, interpreting the layers of history that exist on this space, uh, in, the, in this space over time. And uh, to take all of those and to uh, generate a model of sustainability and forward thinking. It's like the ultimate, Afro, you know, as me as a black woman, it's, to me it's like one of the, you know, the ultimate Afrofuturistic visions. It's like taking all that past in this moment and identifying a particular kind of future um, that is based on sustainability and recognizing the um, recognizing the, the folks who have been there, you know, from the Potawatomi on this land who were um, uh, housed there, so to speak, on a reservation that was the very eastern edge of the reservation. Um, and, for, you know, from the folks that were there and then pushed even further off of that land um, in a, a Trail of Tears sort of uh, experience. Um, to, you know, the white folks who were living on there taking in all the toxicity of that comp- that uh, electric company, that power company that was there, as well as the paper mills that were surrounding it. Um, but also the very long history, at least is by the eight, 1930s of, uh, or maybe even 1920s, of black people in that area as well. Um, you know, porters and laborers, some of folks working in the mill, women uh, running houses, boarding houses, and using their homes as sites of um, economic independence, uh, you know, like a fabulous club, black-owned club called the Pacific Club, all in the same area. And so the wellness park is, is suggesting that, at least that, that third level of wellness, is that um, as people see themselves in history and in, in in a, a wide range of interpretive ways, um, then we have a different kind of um, landscape interpretation, right? This isn't particularly in response to to rapid gentrification all over the world, all over the country, mm-hmm. all over Michigan. But you know, this has that same possibility. And so, you know, how do we stave off that kind of um, you know colonization, uh, so to speak, um, of 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 what has now become black spaces? And so, the the wellness park is really uh, a very intentional effort. To think about all of those, uh, all of those elements, and um, to, to to suggest that all of those elements really do have to be in place. Now, does it always have to be play? Perhaps not, but some kind of free space for people to move their bodies in. Um, levitating ways um, is essential, especially to the wellness of all of us. But for people of color and for poor people. Um, who have not had access to that, it is, I think, an integral um, part of any kind of um, wellness um, strategy and experience that we can uh, create for ourselves and each other. Mm. And I like how you emphasize um, on the Playground website that, you know, the park isn't only for different races and ages and genders, but also um, differently abled people. And so I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. you know, what are playgrounds 
um, visions for differently abled people because, you know, architectural design in general is so behind in terms of um, accessibility. So, you know, what are the visions and ideas that, you know, come along with that? Well, it's it, it's exciting. This is an exciting time because, you know, people are thinking about this far more than they were, well, shoot, you know, when I was a kid, let alone even 10 years ago, um, making spaces accessible. My, uh, my, my mom, well, I, I feel like recently passed. It's been a year this, it'll be a year this month. But you know, I got a lot of experience of how inaccessible the world was as she, as we were trying to get her around on her scooter or her walker. Um, and so that created a whole heightened level of sensitivity, how much my mom would have loved to have get, gotten in a swimming pool, but how difficult it is to find a swimming pool um, that you can get into if you can't climb down the stairs. Or, you uh-huh. know? Um, and so luckily there are lots of, there, 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 you know, people are thinking about that a lot more. Our designer, Craig Wilkins, our lead designer, has got that at, one of, at the forefront of his mind. Um, and so, you know, swings that people, can get into um, easily or, or be, even being able to, there are several kinds of concepts where um, if someone is in a wheeled vehicle, like a, a wheelchair or a scooter or something like that, they can still, they can take that on to the experience so that they, you know, it's, it's not an issue, it's not the difficulty of, you know, being able to transport oneself from one place to another. And so there are all, there are all kinds of ways that we can do that. Um, you know, some of the climbing structures, kind of finding additional ways that people can climb. Um, and so, you know, kind of really thinking through that. And this is the exciting part about it, because at this cur- currently we are still we're going to be are doing our first community engagement, community design engagement in Kalamazoo at the Kalamazoo Eastside Neighborso- Neighborhood Association on the 24th. Fingers crossed with you know, the virus and all mm-hmm. of that and bringing people mm-hmm. together. Um, I won't even go off on that. But hopefully <laughs> we will be able to come together on the 24th. Um, again, teens and adults with, you know, the amazing Craig Wilkins, who um, is a faculty member at the University of Michigan in agricultural and urban design and does really fabulous things all over the, well, really all over the world uh, um, through thinking about public space and public design. Um, we'll be working with the folks, at least right now, we got at least 15 folks together asking the question, you know, how, what, what did you like to play? You know, what would you like to play now? And so the, the, the hope is, and those 15 folks, is we've got, you know, a good handful of folks that have, um, uh, so maybe some challenges on traditional uh, playground equipment or traditional play experiences. And we can think through from the very beginning, because we are at the beginning of designing our equipment in response to community uh, desires, um, that we've got folks at the very beginning that are thinking about or asking, you know, how am I going to get on this? You know, um, and simultaneously us thinking about that on the front end as well. You know, how to make these accessible to uh, to as many folks as possible. 
you know, even the I folks that, that it, it, it might not even be a physical challenge, uh-huh. right? It mm-hmm. could just be a, yeah. ooh, I'm scared. You know, I uh-huh. haven't been on a swing in 30 years, and the last time I fell off backwards or something, you know, but that doesn't <laughs> mean you don't shouldn't get on the swing again. But, you, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. our, 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 our challenges are we can't see them, you know, and so to create space, for um, both the, the known and acknowledged and visible challenges, but also those that um, need to invite us in gentle ways to um, enter back on the, uh, a playscape. You know, I think, too, like you were talking about the history of that space, but even as you have people come in and they're talking about, you know, what they like to do, it's sort of like a storytelling, but that mm-hmm. adds layers to that history of that place. You know, it's like so that you can look at it and not only visualize the future, but see the past, what we did, you know, as a community, yes. how we yes. played, how we did that. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was very lucky to grow up in Saginaw with around black business. You know, I, you know, and I came to consciousness on the south side of Chicago on Stony Island in 69th. Um, and so my auntie had a beauty shop in Saginaw and along 6th Street and one of the hubs, you know, we had beauty shops and barber shops and grocery stores and butchers and clubs and churches, you know, like it was a strip. And so I grew up seeing that as a model of how, what it meant to be to be black and what it meant to be to be a community and to have a sense of autonomy, you know, like we had our own stuff. Um, and our young people, shoot, our, most of us, we don't see that anymore um, in those same kinds of ways. And so um, I think that the wellness park, you know, that, that, that wellness of culture is also elevating and bringing forward that those elements of history, you know, when we were running things in our own communities, and then when we see that we were doing that and that we are doing it in the um, the elevation of that history in those culture, those parts of our culture, then that creates a it, it's an easier step for our, our our next generations to say, oh yeah, okay. You know, because when I saw it, I'm like, oh, this is the expectation. And so hopefully this will, by um, raising up these, um, these elements of history and culture, um, this will give um, our, our young people and, again, our next generations that next step up. You know, because that's, that's not to say they can't create it, they won't see it, they won't imagine it if we don't show it to them because, shoot, we saw it when somebody, I saw, God, all kind of things nobody showed me. But we can give them a little boost, you know, by showing them what is possible. And so there's that piece to it, I think, as well. Yeah. How did you, I mean, how did you accumulate the land? And what are your concerns about, you know, cleaning it up? Mm, absolutely. Well, I, the, the land is still owned by the city of Kalamazoo, and we are in the process of, 
um, really kind of thinking through what are some just and equitable ways to have that land um, not be gentrified, right, not, not be yeah. taken mm-hmm. over by all of the folks that would love to live on the Kalamazoo River, but because it's Bronco, you can't live there. We wouldn't probably even be having this conversation if you could live there right now. Um, it would be probably a very different conversation. But um, nonetheless, we are trying. We are thinking through, and again, we're in the, the early stages of um, possible uh, alternative models of land ownership. Now, there are two, there are kind of then there are two directions to go with this. Um, one, we're thinking through whether for this place or for another, I'm in the process of, of establishing a cultural land trust, a nonprofit mm-hmm. organization that identifies land that um, is particularly under. Um, siege potentially um, through rapid change, through rapid economic or cultural change, i.e. gentrification, um, or land that is historically or culturally, and oftentimes there's a parallel between the two, um, land that or property that is also culturally or historically significant to us as um, black and brown people. um, Because one of the the difficulties of this gentrification swarm that's happening. Um, and I think oftentimes about Leo Lillard, who said that, uh, he says, you know, gentrification makes it sound too too nice, too gentle. Uh-huh. So let's call it what mm-hmm. it really is, is white reinvasion. And and he's, yeah. a, he's an active, you know, longtime civil rights activist and his, you know, you know from the 60s to the present is still um, active. And um, so... When we're thinking through it along those models of kind of trying to find ways to stave off gentrification, that is one of the that's one of the the land the cultural land trust um, is a potential solution to that, and so we're exploring that as a way to stave that off. But also, if you've got a spot like I'm sure you know about Paradise Lake down in Cass uh-huh. County, one, one of our, you know, many black resorts in Michigan, particularly in southwest Michigan, or even along the St. Joe River in Three Rivers, another um, traditionally, traditional black resort, um, or at Idlewild, or at Eagle Lake, or um, at, you know, these various places, um, Woodland Park, um, when we when those lands are sold, they're not we're black people are not buying them, and these are places with rich black history, rich American history, rich Michigan history, and so it's so but and, and with significant history of black ownership, um, and so the la- the cultural land trust is saying, hold on a second, but how do we secure these spaces, right? So that when um, a, a black family sells them, or you know this spot, spot of land, you know, two acres on Paradise Lake that once held Gray's Hotel, which is a really fabulous hotel in Cass County, um, in this black resort, when that land comes up for sale, how do we secure it? You know, mm-hmm. so that we can mm-hmm. have some 
control over how it's interpreted and that it's interpreted and that it's held in trust. And so um, there are so many kinds of places like that in Michigan and across the country. And we're looking at this place as potentially one of those types of places because it has this layered uh, cultural history um, from the Potawatomi to the present. Um, simultaneously, should that be, like, because it is Brownfield floodplain, you know, like, is this, do, do you, do, is it right to entrust it to people with limited resources, or should this continue to be the city's responsibility with a with an easement, say, for instance, that um, says that anything that happens has to be um, uh, kind of cleared through these representatives on the land trust? So really trying to think through what do we do right now to secure these spaces, recognizing that in a lot of ways we're like 10 years too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so bringing the, these questions of the land trust and, and how do we um, maintain this land over time, because, again, it's got lead and arsenic in it, lead and arsenic, arsenic. Um, and, you know, how are we, you know, that is a life, that, that, that's a, a, a responsibility potentially in perpetuity, you know, until mm-hmm. some brilliant black person comes along and figures out how to turn arsenic into something good for us <laughs> um, and or lead, you know, how can we, you know, like, you know, whatever science happens in the next, you know, 50 to 100 to 200 years where they can, you know, mine it and use it, I don't know, um, until that time, um, it's still going to need to be monitored because, um, you know, it's, it's toxic. And then it floods, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is, and a lot of things potentially can be flooding with climate change, right? So rather than running away from these problems, how do we solve them? What are the ways that we can develop that are sustainable to not have to leave, Right. Um, you know, because as climate change starts to happen, as it, it looks inevitably like it will, and there is more water and more flooding, does that mean as, those, as the shorelines recede that we have to recede too? Um, and how do we find ways to continue to keep space that we have had and modify it and find, um, find ways um, to to heal, to heal, uh-huh. and have that be our economic model. And so this is also in part, you know, what are the solutions? You know, what are the solutions to this toxic land? You know, how do we co-develop them in ways that we have um, not just some control over them, but some some vested interest in the future if we're thinking about economic development models. Um, what do we, how, how do we as, as black people and as poor people um, deal with floodplains in both systemic ways and, um, and, and day-to-day ways? And so this is intended as much as possible to be a, a solution to some of the more pressing issues that I think we have 
um, that we're looking at, that we've been looking at, you know, Uh none of this is brand new, right? But now you 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 can't hide your eyes any longer. But in your design, do you have the flexibility to think about, you know, those future things? What if this plane slug comes in? What do we do in our design to make sure that, you know, we're flexible with what the changes that might happen environmentally? Yes, we have all of the control. Um, you know, I'm leading. You know, <laughs> this is so expensive. I mean, but and, and when I say we, that's for real. We, it's you know, like me and the designers that you know, um, like Craig. You know, he knows what my vision is. You know, sometimes he's like he thinks I'm a crackpot, but more and more I think he he thinks I got some good ideas. Um, but. More than often, you know, it's really about what the community can envision in, too. And so it's like we're at that, we're lucky enough to be at the beginning stages of this where we can co-develop or where we are co-developing together with these elements in place. So um, also this month, you know, again, fingers crossed for people being able to gather, we'll be bringing scientists together from K College in various places to say, okay, well, you know, we know here's the lead and arsenic. What are the phases that we can um, generate for accessibility to this land? How do we, you know, what's the feasibility of coming in and just taking all of this dirt and taking it someplace else versus capping it versus, and maybe it's not even a versus, maybe it's a combination, um, or in addition to growing the alfalfa that pulls these, um, mm-hmm. some of these toxins out naturally and some of the trees that could pull some of these toxins out naturally much more slowly, of course, and then, you know, not wanting, you know, for me, I'm not wanting to bring in a bunch of trees to just to do the dirty work and, you know, that then they get sick. You know, that, I mean, it, that, if we're talking about solutions, that's not a long term solution either to, you know, basically infect something else with the toxins. But that does seem that the, uh, that the trees at the simultaneously, at, w- 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 these are things we need to find out, also pocket these toxins as well so that it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, like we create these kinds of cysts or tumors, so to speak. It appears that the trees also have the potential for just um, creating isolated locations for them. And then, you know, so my dream, my, uh, you know, my vision is like, well, then maybe we could do ultrasound on these trees and locate and just take out those pockets. But, you know, be, but I am not a scientist. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm a, a, a science fantasy person, and I, you know, I do think that I've got some visions. But these are the kinds of questions that we'll be bringing to the table, and we'll be having our first conversations um, the the twenty fifth or the twenty sixth of this month, bringing together folks who have, um, you know, far more experience in monitoring and media, remediating land and water, and so. Um, it's very exciting to be involved with a team of folks that are thinking through sustainable methods for, um, you know, ultimately, you know, whatever levels of access we can have that are sustainable for humans and for, you know, animal, other animals too. I mean, they're eating, you know, birds are eating the grass, you know, that, that's mm-hmm. 
just like they're taking just because we're not eating and rolling around in this land doesn't mean that other animals aren't um aren't doing so and so you know we do have a, i think a responsibility to think about um access and the sustainability mm-hmm. of that across species mm-hmm. Yeah, I kept thinking. Um, are there any parallels between this site and the Uniroyal site in Detroit? Mm, tell me about the Uniroyal site. I don't know. Well, because you know, at the Uniroyal site, because uh, you know, I used to uh, be involved with affordable housing. But one of the plants that other people had looked at it, and because that plant was there, that there are things in the ground where they said, well, maybe eventually. Far ends of it could, but there's one part they said that people could probably never live on, you know, mm-hmm. but, but they could make it a playground, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they could make it a playground or something like that. And, you know, and so I'm wondering, like, now you're talking about that, but you think that there's this whole environmental piece that we need to talk about when we look at in our cities where often you have plants, you, there you have the paper mills, you have these things that have mm-hmm. done this to it. And we've got people who live around that. And like you said, there's animals that they're exposed to who are exposed to things like this. But there's people who are exposed to this. And how do we – it seems like there would be an environmental interest in what you're yes, doing. Yes, absolutely. And this particular pot of land, you know, one of the layers of history that I didn't mention that is so important is – um, it was also a, tent, a tented settlement for, I think, about four years, um, and even as, er, even as early as um, the middle of last year, there were people who were living um, in, uh, you know, various t- temporary or kind of long, sometimes longer-term temporary um, situations, um, camping there on the land, um, who, um, you know, perhaps didn't have access to other kinds of housing, um, or perhaps, you know, some people like to live outside. I'm not going to speak for folks, um, but quite often it is because people don't have access to, um, housing, um, but man, they were like, you know, they were camping, you know, on this land that was very toxified. Um, and so, you know, sometimes even folks who are living more temporarily um, in these spaces are impacted. And we can't always control that, so we should make sure that the land is cleaned up. And th- mm-hmm. so th- this is, and this is quite often, um, you know, it's a, a it, hits across all kinds of intersections of experience, but um, we know that environmental racism is real. You know, Detroit, for instance, the incinerator, only when white people started coming and smelling that and trying to, after they decided they wanted to live in Detroit, did people start, did people start really paying attention to the years of activism where people were saying that there were some issues with the incinerator on the east side of Detroit, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and so these environmental environmental issues are always at the forefront of poor and people of color's experiences from what I've been able to see. And so if we can or as we figure out ways 
to remediate these um, these exper- these um, these toxins in our communities. We're going to, and my hope is that we are able to um, be kind of revolutionary in creating some economically sustainable ways to do that that then are generated within our community but are able to um, serve our communities, you know, especially across Michigan. I'm very, I'm from Michigan. I am Michigan, Michigan, Michigan. Um, But, you know, I'm from Saginaw as well, and we have so much brownfield um, in Saginaw, I want to be, us to be able to come up with ways that uh, my folks in Saginaw can um, clean up their land there um, and folks in Detroit, that we create some sustainable models within our community for our community. And so I'm thrilled that we've got people that are on board that are thinking along those same terms and um, are, you know, really fascinated and invested in um, living at the intersection, you know, solutions at the intersection of, you know, I've been saying for the Institute of Public Scholarship, the intersection of humanities, arts, and science. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think our solutions reside in that, at, at that intersection, at that place where those um, those visions and those um, established traditions can come together and create um, create the kind of sustainable future that we all need so desperately. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take our second break here, and when we come back, um, if I hear I, I, I could hear your the wheels turning, Kizzy. Uh, let Kizzy um, ask a thing, and then also talk about this team that you've put together, and where Playgrown is going from from here. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. So you talked about um, your design, Craig Wilkins, your design sent from the Detroit Community Design Center. You've also, um, you've got a team here, which includes um, someone who does, Carlos Neobot, who does Can Art Handiworks, Laura Sprague, who does the Body Love Project, and Shante Brown, who is, she does theater, arts, and game design. How did you pull this, this to group together, and what, what does each one bring to this? 
Well, and, and, I, and I would add with Craig, um, the really incredible Damon Dickerson, who is an architect as well, and he's working closely with Dr. Wilkins. Um, Craig and I go way, way back. Um, to, uh, I think it was an American Studies conference where we met, and we bonded on this question of space and thinking about um, how black people either inhabit space, have to hold on to space, and, and, and also very strong commitments we realized we both had for, uh, for, for public scholarship. So taking these questions um, outside of the academy or bringing questions from outside the academy into the academy. Um, and so we, we, we bonded on that um, and have, have stayed uh, connected, especially over those kinds of ways that we uh, articulate ourselves as public scholars. Um, Damon Dickerson was at one point a board member for FIRE. He had come to Kalamazoo for a, a job as an architect there, and uh, Craig connected us, and it became real clear that Damon had, um, in, in addition to a very structural mind, a very playful spirit. And so I'm excited to have him involved in this project. Um, Carlos Neilbach, Car I it's so fascinating. You, you might be, he's, he's over there on Wilkins um, on the east side of Detroit and is just an incredibly talented um, blacksmith and, and person who, who works with metal and has kind of done some fascinating, innovative, not kind of, he has clearly done some very innovative work uh, with windmills and modifying um, different pieces of not necessarily found objects, but you know, kind of refiguring the windmill as a, a an, an alternative energy source, and um, but also does incredible um, metal work and uh, refinishing of some of the I think the Fisher Building, some of the Fisher Building in um, Detroit, um, and so. He and I have been talking about a, 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 a modified standing swing, um, and so we are working. I'm working with him on that project. Laura Sprague has been my personal trainer and um, has an, um, had an immediate affinity for this project and um, has quantified some, so many of the um, experiences one has on a, on a playground. So what kinds of core muscles are you using when you swing? You know, you're not just like, la, 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 right? You're, you know, you're, you're using <laughs> your, your core Right, you're, you're, um, and so and so so similarly thinking about if you're climbing up a slide, you know, what are the muscles that you're using there? If you're bouncing, you know, uh, kind of really thinking through the importance of the lymphatic system, you know, when we bounce, or the, or the importance of bouncing to the lymphatic system rather, and so. Laura has a whole playground workout that you know she's developed and that we've taught, we've worked through together in some cases um, to think through not just the um, you know the qualitative components of our our playground experiences, but really to kind of be able to if you if you need to 
measure what are the, what those benefits are and what uh, what muscle groups are being used um and so she's been she's been on board for well probably about 9 years with this project um and then Shantae Brown um, just a you know a brilliant uh, not just but a, a brilliant uh, um, playwright and director and producer um, from Detroit who we we met um, when I was the, at Fire and she was at Fire as well and just kind of she she brings that element of play connected to theater and kind of the kind of connectivity that. Uh, the actors and the writer needs to have and kind of creating these experiences, um, but a real strong kind of family tradition of play in her, uh, in her experience and um, a very creative person. Um, and so she likes to create new games and new modifications of tag. And um, so I'm really excited to have her on board um, if we can, if we can get, get keep her involved in, while she's doing such great things as um, helping with Inside Out, which I'm, I know you're familiar with in mm-hmm. Detroit, and you know writing all kinds of plays that are getting produced in Detroit and Chicago and New York. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm really happy to have what, uh, such a great, talented team of folks that um, you know that I anticipate will continue to grow. But simultaneously now to be partnered with, um, you know, city officials like Rebecca Kick and um, Pat Taylor, the really outstanding executive director of the Kalamazoo uh, Eastside Neighborhood Association, who um, is very excited about this project to be able to bring some kind of new experiences and recreational opportunities for folks in this community um, and to think through the land trust and to think how we secure space for um, folks in light of, again, this, this rapid social change and economic change that's happening in the community. Um, so to have partners that are um, creative on all kinds of levels, creative from the, you know, sit down and be able to design it or to create a game um, to people like Pat who are creatively every day trying to figure out how to uh, generate opportunities um, for folks to be able to stay in their communities in um, sustainable ways. Um, And to be an executive director of a nonprofit um, is I think probably one of the ultimate acts of creativity and artistry, um, and so to be teamed up with folks like that, as well as you know Buddy Hannah, who has a long um, history in that community, uh, both of living there and collecting the oral testimonies of folks on the east side. Um, my my sister uh, Donna, who is uh, 80 years old, will be 81 in July, um, who grew up in that area and remembers, you know, the nightclubs and the bars and the gambling joints and the brothels and the boarding houses and 
um, you know, the really lively, lively community that was part of that. Um, you know, those, are, you know, those are members of the team too for this particular site. And because, um, because those stories, because that understanding of place is so important, um, it's that, it's that, it's got, it's got to be that kind of team. Um, you know, my goddaughter, Carmisa, who lives, um, on the east side and has, has lived there, you know, the, the, uh, pretty much most of her life, um, who's calling for, uh, you know, some, engagement with entrepreneurial opportunities for, especially for black women in the community. Um, you know, how do we coalesce in this space um, of wellness um, with all of those folks on board um, means we're going to have something really incredible and a, a model, a model experience. Um, and that's really the goal here. You know, I'm, I'm about thinking about legacy at this point in my life. Mm. And, um, the, you know, I think that this is um, picking up the legacy that so many people have carried on before me and doing my part to hand something over to folks that um, is going to have some meaning um, you know, not just in my life, but, you know, you know, I'm, I'm on the seven generation model, you know, that we fix the stuff we, you know, we draw from the last seven generations and we create uh-huh. for the next seven. Uh-huh. And, you know, without appropriating indigenous people's uh, 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 kind of language and ideologies, but to uh, to really gather some of the intelligence of that perspective, because if we're, building something um, now with the understanding that it should be here or could be here seven generations from now, um, we're going to create a very different kind of world. Mm -hmm. And what has been the response from families and the communities? Because I'm, you know, thinking about how phenomenal this project is, you know, especially for black children, just for them to have a space where they can be carefree and, you know, be kids in a world that um, demonizes them and mm. views them as older. Now that's such, that's such, oh, I love that, that, that perspective. Um, it's because, yeah, like, especially like you, you have, especially, you know, it's not just boys or girls, right? You're exactly right that, you know, once once a, a black child, especially, hits about 12 years old at the very, you know, at the, the very latest in many ways, they're started to be treated like adults. Sometimes we do mm-hmm. that ourselves to our young people, but we do know that um, they become um, uh, challenged, sometimes victims, by people's perception of them as being far more grown than they are. And this is not to say that even grown people need to be treated the way they're treating our young people as grown people. Um, but you're exactly right that you know that loss of um, our, our, the loss of our childhood. Um, is something that this that this uh, should help facilitate, and the reclamation of some of our childhoods that you know that, that those of us who had to or did grow up way too quickly, um, and so 
what initially I'm hearing, um, you know, on the street or when I'm getting able, being able to talk to uh, talk about it with people is excitement. You know, people are like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it feels like a different kind of yes than, yeah, that's a great idea. Pause, mm-hmm. you know. It seems like, yes, when are we going to do this? Is this really happening? How are we going to do it? How can I, how can I be involved, you know, running into somebody outside of the, you know, looking for space and you know, trying to find some space to be able to do this. And it's really difficult right now um, to be able to have space, uh, building space, um, because the, they've, the developers have come. You know, people have bought up a lot of the commercial space, and now it's not accessible. We're talking about half a million or $327,000. Um, the $327,000 place, not very big, right? But they're kind of thinking mm-hmm. about, could this be a, a marijuana dispensary or, you know, this, you know, this, you know, that it's, um, you know, the, the climate is pretty intense there. So I'm looking for a space, and I run into Andrea, and she's like, this is a great idea. I would love to be involved. And so people are excited, and I'm, I'm third, again, keep our fingers crossed that we can meet on the 24th with community members. I'm really excited to hear um, even more what people can envision and um, what this possibility of unlocking some access to our our child self, which quite often um, outside those, you know, when we're nasty little bad children, um, you know, those times <laughs> when, um, you know, when we're our best, you know, so mm-hmm. often when we're our, when we're children, we are. Um, you know, this is not to idealize our childhood because I was, severe, you know, very tainted by the time I was four or five, you know, <laughs> but I, you know, with trauma, you know, like, yeah. like there's so much trauma, um, but there's still, you know, we still have our, our shiny, lovely spirits, so many of us and some, um, and so to be able to find more ways to ask, access those those shiny, lovely spirits that we are still, um, I you know I'm looking forward to seeing that spark in people's eye when they talk about how they used you know just just talking to folks like I want to have Foursquare you know I want to mm-hmm. make sure that we can play a hopscotch you know people get excited and mm. that excitement is what's going to keep us going. It's always what's kept us going, the laughter, the dancing, the the parties, the games, you know. Um, I'm a Zora Neale Hurston scholar, and I know that that's part of why she documented the songs and the dances um, and the stories, because that's where we found joy and that we have to find all the places we can to access our joy. And I am so excited to be able to be involved in a project that is, that's what it's all about, you know, is people's mm-hmm. joy. Well, Michelle, I want to thank you for, for sharing this with us. We will be back in touch with you because I'm ready to play. <laughs> Come on I'm in. Ready. <laughs> I'm ready to play. And this is like such an <laughs> exciting, exciting work. Um, but we will be in touch. We'll be circling back with you to find out what's going on, um, how you're developing, and, and 
What's the next step? So I want to thank you for take, making time to be with us tonight. Um, are you still doing DJ Disobedience? Oh, you know it. Every Saturday <laughs> from 11 to 1 Eastern Standard Time, 89.1 WIDRFM.org, the Slipback mm-hmm. Soul Show. We'll be digging into the archives of the lovers of blues, jazz, soul, funk, and R&B. And then, you know, I still, you know, I do gigs. I'm, I'm excited to be um, the DJ for... Um, the Be Well Black Woman Tour that Damara West is putting on that will be touring between Kalamazoo, Grand Rapids, and Detroit. So I think, I can't remember when we'll be in Detroit. I'll let you know. Um, oh, so, yeah. yeah, sometimes the DJ gigs pay the rent, you know. <laughs> that's, that's a dream. <laughs> hey, hey, that's it. I love that. I love that. Well, again, thank you. For, thank for you for time. what you do. Yeah, thank you so much, Michelle. Oh, Kizzy, it was a pleasure to kind of meet you, to hear your voice and hear your questions <laughs> at the meeting. <laughs> well, you know and, what? I'm just going to have to get Kizzy up there, over there to Kalamazoo. Yeah, come on with I know. both of you. <laughs> Take care, both of you. Thank you both so much for what you do. We would like to thank our guest, scholar, community activist, and founder of Playgrown, Dr. Michelle S. Johnson. Playgrown creates accessible intergenerational play spaces and exercise opportunities that provide transformative principles of play for populations of play-deprived teens and adults. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 statewide prohibition of community gatherings in Michigan, the meeting to discuss next steps for Playground in the city of Kalamazoo was postponed. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when we'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.